Tantamount Season 1 is a true crime podcast on the Washington, D.C. serial killer, the Freeway Phantom. Due to the graphic nature, it is not intended for those under the age of 18. Hello, this is Blaine Pardo. And this is Victoria Hester. Welcome to Episode 4 of Tantamount Season 1, The Investigation and the Evidence. To bring you up to speed so far in the series, a serial killer stalks the nation's capital in 1971 through 1972. He is responsible for at least seven murders of young girls and women, strangling most of his victims, stabbing one of them. Their bodies have been left along major highways and roadways or in rivers and around the D.C. area, earning him the nickname the Freeway Phantom. In the press, one young girl, Angela Barnes, was often cited as one of the Phantom's victims. We talked about her case in a previous episode, but not in any detail. The Washington Metropolitan Police Department, or MPD, considered her one of the victims for almost the entire duration of the Freeway Phantom spree. It makes her hard to remove. Before we dive down the rabbit hole and into the Green Vega gang, I think it's worth exploring her murder for a few moments since her name is often cited with these crimes. Victoria, you did the most research on Angela's death, so why don't you walk our listeners through what happened to her? On July 13, 1971, 14-year-old Angela Denise Barnes was found near Route 228 at 6.35 a.m., She had been lying by the roadside west of Waldorf about seven hours after leaving a friend's home just 10 blocks away from her own home. She had been shot in her head with a 38 caliber bullet. She had not been sexually assaulted. Carol Spinks had been killed by the Phantom in April. The next week, Darlenia Johnson had gone missing and would not be found by the police until July 19th. So in the middle of the start of the Freeway Phantom spree, Angela Barnes is shot and killed. The press and the authorities both felt that she was a victim of a yet unnamed serial killer. And add to that, her middle name was Denise, so that fed to the theory that the killer was targeting girls with that middle name. When you look back at the crimes, it makes sense. Now, in the 21st century, we know something about how serial killers think and act. But in the 70s, they didn't have those insights. They were looking for a pattern, and the name Denise fit that in some way. Of course now, it seems almost laughable as a theory. You have several local psychiatrists quoted in the newspapers warning families with children with the name Denise in their name to watch over them, that the killer would be coming for them. It seems almost laughable. I mean, I get it. They lashed onto a theory, but it just seems implausible. Agreed. Let's loop back to Angela Barnes. Angela Barnes, however, was not a victim of the Freeway Phantom. As it turns out, two police officers were actually responsible for her murder. Edward Leon Selman and Tommy Bernard Simmons had forced Angela into their car at gunpoint the night of her murder. She had been forced to perform a sex act with at least one of the men. 
In a struggle, Edward Selman shot her in the head. Selman's wife, Dorothy, found blood, fiber, and hair in the car and eventually turned her own husband in. Her testimony was critical in the convictions. By 1974, both men were brought up on murder charges and convicted. Strangely enough, they were both in Lorton Prison, where Leon Williams, Diane Williams' father, worked. We were told by one of the detectives we interviewed that they took steps to make sure that he was not ever near them at his work. The reason was simple. It took authorities a long time, three years, to remove Angela from the list of phantom victims and to confirm that Selman and Simmons had nothing to do with the Freeway Phantom murders. There was a concern that he might take revenge on them. Of course, by that time, it was hard to extract Angela from the list of Freeway Phantom victims in the hearts and minds of the public. Her name and picture had been in the newspaper numerous times on the Phantom's list of victims. Rather than provide relief to the families, almost had the opposite effect. When the truth came out that two police officers were involved in Angela's death, it only fueled the belief with the victims that somehow the police might be involved with the deaths of their young girls. Many in D.C. communities that the girls lived in distrusted the police and felt that only a police officer could have enticed the girls into a killer's car. That seems like a legit distrust to me. Me too. I mean, the police hadn't been idle after the killings had stopped. They searched for the Volkswagen seen near the scene of Nemo Yates' abduction. Hundreds of Volkswagen owners were checked looking for that one Fauntroy political bumper sticker on its rear bumper. That bumper sticker had been seen and was a local political candidate. Despite their best efforts, though, the Volkswagen was never found. A hotline was established, and they took in thousands of tips on the Phantom. Most of them were creepy. A few callers even claimed that they were the Phantom, but none of them ever panned out. It's a common problem with cold cases. After a certain point, the useful tips and leads stop coming in. If the Phantom had still been committing murders, was still in the public and media's eye, it would have helped. But then he stopped. Two of the true crime magazines at the time picked up the story, Crime Detective and Official Detective. The stories there were clearly fed by the investigators. Several officers were quoted in the articles. While these magazines had a bit of seedy appearance, they tended to show young, scantily clad women tied up on the covers of them. They did give insights from the men and women working the cases themselves. It's not your conventional research material, but they were fascinating to read. I'm a child of the 70s. I remember as a kid that these magazines were on the rack right next to Playboy and Penthouse, usually covered up so we couldn't read them. They were tabloids. I find these old true crime magazines useful for research, though. Oftentimes, they were written by the investigators themselves or by reporters who covered the stories. They can't provide new information that upstanding newspaper editors at the time might not have allowed. It's hard to track down these old issues. In one case, it took me over a year, but it was well worth it. I think we should talk a little bit about the evidence that the police had at the time. I say at the time because much of the evidence has been lost or purposefully destroyed over the years. If you put yourself in the frame of a detective in 1972, 
They didn't have all the techniques that we have now, such as DNA, etc. Well, from Carol Spinks, you had negroid hairs that were found on her shorts, sweater, panties, and bra and barrettes. You had the synthetic green fibers inside her shorts and panties. Some human blood was recovered from under her fingernails and her barrettes, but it was too small of an amount for actual testing. They recovered nothing useful from Darlenia Johnson, given how long her remains had laid on the roadside. With Brenda Crockett, however, some negroid hairs were found in her palm, probably as a result of a struggle. Black synthetic fibers were recovered that were tied to the scarf around her neck. Green synthetic fibers were found inside her blouse, shorts, and panties. Semen was found mixed with blood inside of her panties. With Nino Yates, they found negroid hair in her panties, sanitary napkins, sweatshirt, and jeans. Synthetic green fibers were found on her body under her clothing. Now, here the reports vary. The Baltimore medical examiners said that semen was found in vaginal smears they had done. While the FBI tested the same material a few weeks later, they did not find any. Don't forget with Yates, they had a photograph of a tire track near the victim, only possibly from a Volkswagen, and a brown lady's loafer, which may have come from Darlenia Johnson. That's true. When they recovered Brenda Woodard, we got the biggest evidence find possible, that being the note that was found on her body. Some semen was recovered as negroid hairs from her coat, boots, shirt, and bra. Again, we have the telltale green synthetic fibers in her socks and panties. They did find Caucasian hairs on her coat and shirt, but those are believed to have come from a blanket that was draped over her body. Cross-contamination was just not a big deal in the 1970s. What has never been made public before our research was that there was a guard at Prince George's Hospital that saw a red Chevy Camaro that had stopped for some time near where Brenda's body was found. The guard got a very vague description of the driver in the vehicle. When I say vague, even the race of the driver was questionable. There was nothing to indicate that the car had anything to do with the crime. It could have been that just someone stopped, saw the body, and drove on, not wanting to be involved. Still, Camaros became another target vehicle for investigators after Brenda's discovery. With the discovery of Diane Williams' body, we have more green fibers on her bra. Brown Caucasian hair was found on her body, but that is believed to have come from investigators. Negroid hairs were found, but the FBI believed them to be from her. Semen was also found in the vaginal swabbing. While her boyfriend denied that they had engaged in sex, in 2009, Prince George's County tested that evidence, and we heard, unconfirmed from one of our sources, that indeed it was from her boyfriend. With Tierra and Bryant, we don't know what was recovered. The authorities refused to tell us. They don't believe she is a part of the Freeway Phantom's list of victims, but they are still not forthcoming with any information either. If you think about it, that's a lot of evidence. It is. And if these crimes happened today, there's no doubt that they would have found the killer. But it was in the early 70s. The evidence that had been handled now so many times without precautions as to preserving DNA, it would be a challenge to use it. Well, let's talk about the green fiber evidence for a minute. The FBI confirmed these all came from the same source. 
Initially, they were thought to have come from a carpet of some sort, such as those used in the trunks of cars, but no matches were found. They don't know for sure what the source was, just that the fibers were all the same. But the fibers do tell a story. Think about where they were found. Inside underwear, bras, panties, and socks. In other words, the victims were stripped of their clothing and they picked up those fibers from a source because they were thrown or placed on them. Former detective, if there is such a thing, Romaine Jenkins, who worked the case, has her own theory. He had vast control over them. Well, you know, Victoria and I did the Colonial Parkway murders. I noticed two of these victims, at least, were reported with no shoes. Oh, yeah. Well, their shoes missing. Um, I think what else is missing from the victims? And they think on one of the scenes, on the scenes of Yates, a a lady's loafer is found. That So that when whoever took out the vehicle, the loafer came out. And Darlene Johnson was wearing loafers, and she was found without shoes. So they... It, it was assumed that that might have been hers, but they never, they never, you know, took it to her family and asked. He said, "Is this her shoes?" Right, yeah. right. Would have been interesting if they had done that. But see. when Carol Spinks left home, she was wearing two pair of shorts. When her body is found, she only has one pair on, and her tennis shoes are missing. Um, Crockett, Crockett went to the store, but she didn't have shoes on. However, the soles of her feet were clean. So they had to have been taken off before she was walking anywhere. That's so odd. Well, it tells me that she and the rest of these girls were bathing. It's, it's, it, this, is, this is what I look at as a woman. When I looked at the autopsy photos and so forth, I said, uh-uh, these women have been in water. That's odd. Mm -hmm. Because you wash away the evidence. That's true. See, so you wash away. So do you think it was before or after they were killed? After, after. After they were killed. That's that's what I'm saying. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then he redressed them. And he redressed them. Yeah, they were. because Which the is fibers, probably why there's no shoes. Because right. why would you bother? Right, because the fiber, the fibers on all of them were found on their underpants. They had outer garments on. So <laughs> if the fibers are found under your shorts and, 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 and whatever else you had, on, that means those things have been removed. And they found on their bras and their underpants. Wow. So that means they were undressed in. That's just so much work for a person to go to that length if you're going to bathe a body and redress it and then take it in the car and then dump it somewhere. Well, or else. Or this else, turns into like else, a couple hour or thing. Or else you made them, or else you made them shower or whatever while they were alive. Yeah. And Brenda Wood had, had on knee boots. And under the knee boots, she had on long socks. The fibers were found on her socks, so that meant her boots had been taken off. Wow. Yeah, because sometimes killers will take their shoes because that prevents them from running away. Right, right. You know, but if the fibers the are on it, then that proves that yeah. they had to have been on the floor I've never heard on something. Yeah. That whatever, whatever they touched, whatever, five of these young ladies came in contact with whatever it was. Now... Um, at one point, the, the FBI said something that the fibers, rayon fibers of that nature were, were used for auto 
to right. like an auto carpet. Right. However, Lloyd Davis talked to someone about fibers. It wasn't a policeman. And they said the, this type of fiber would be something, it was too weak to be a car mat fiber, that it looked like it came from a bathroom mat. Huh. Which sounds really reasonable that if they had to shower. And then they were probably they were clothes from right clothes. there. Right, right. Now this is what Davis put it, told me, and this is what he, he put in his report. Brenda was seen barefoot the day she disappeared. When she was found, her feet were clean. We've seen the autopsy photograph. This supports that the killer bathed his victims. Whether he was washing them as part of some mental cleansing on his part, washing away his guilt, or if he was doing it to remove evidence, he was cleaning his victims. And since none of them were reported with wet hair when they were found, I think we can rule out a shower. This was a bathtub. I think it's more sinister than that. A bathtub is a confining space when you are just sitting in it. You can't jump up or roll out of it. It holds you. I think he may have killed his victims in the tub, and based on the fact that he redressed them, that is likely where he killed them. That's true. Ironically, if he was trying to wash away evidence, he was actually picking it up, the green fibers. Some of the victim's clothing had been put on backwards or inside out. If the victims had put it on, they would have done it right. So, what we have from these fibers is a possible, stress possible, scenario. The killer had his victims strip, throwing their clothes on some sort of source for the green fibers, a carpet or a blanket or a rug. He assaulted them. He had them get into a bathtub where he washed them. It was there that he killed them, strangling them. Removing them from the tub, he redressed them as best he could, carrying along the green fiber evidence. Then he took them in his vehicle to deposit them along a roadway. Of course, the potential exception to this is Thierry Ann Bryant, who was strangled, but not likely in his residence. And in fairness, nothing forensically was recovered from the body of Darlenia Johnson. I have to say, this makes perfect sense, but it creeps the hell out of me. Some of these victims spent a lot of time with the Phantom. To me, this feels like some sort of ritual that the killer goes through. The mental picture I get of the killer almost soothing his victims with a warm bath, only to strangle them, well, is bizarre and disturbing. To me, it seems to indicate that he had a basic understanding of police investigative techniques. He knew he was potentially leaving trace evidence on the bodies, so he was washing it off. What he didn't realize was that in the process of cleaning his victims, he was leaving the telltale green fibers in their clothing, fibers that allowed the investigators to connect his crimes. The killer may have kept souvenirs as well. Carol Spink's blue size eight and a half tennis shoes, possibly one of Darlenia Johnson's shoes, pink plastic foam hair curlers, and white tennis shoes from Brenda Crockett, Brenda Woodard's school books and buttons from her coat and skirt, shoelaces from Diane Williams. To us, this seems like a hodgepodge of items, but for a serial killer, 
These kind of souvenirs of his experiences allow him to connect with the crimes all over again. It stirs up memories of him of what actually happened. The sad part is that if anyone saw these items, like a family member, they may not understand that these were items that were tied to such brutal sexual assaults and murders. But for the killer, these were equal to a hunter's trophies. Despite the evidence in hand, the authorities had little else to go on. While the official line to the press was that the authorities were still working on the cases, the reality was that they were running out of tips and leads to actually investigate. The bottom line was that these cases were at a dead end until the Green Vega gang got involved. I know you would like to jump in on the profile of the Freeway Phantom, but I think we do need to take our listeners on a full trek of the next stage of the investigation as it unfolded. Dad, why don't you tell the listeners about how the gang got involved in the Freeway Phantom case? Okay, but this isn't going to be an easy journey. I like to think I can tell a story, but this one has so many characters and twists that it can be confusing. I'll do what I can to keep this as simple as possible. Suffice it to say, the Freeway Phantom wasn't the only crime spree in Washington, D.C. in 1971-72. There were a string of gang rapes in the city. A large number of them involved several perpetrators working together. They cruised the streets of D.C. in a green Chevy Vega with Maryland plates. This gang would pick up its victims, take them to an isolated location such as an empty apartment, rape their victims, then drop them off somewhere else in the district. Sometimes they struck more than once a night. The way they operated was that a well-dressed driver would pull up to a girl hitchhiking or at a bus stop and offer them a ride. The driver would go a block or so, and there would be one or other members of the gang pretending that they also needed rides. Well, the driver would pull them up, pick them up, wedging the girl between them. She had no idea that the pickup was all staged, a dangerous and deadly trick aimed at trapping her in the car with her assailants. The Washington MPD never told the public that there was a rape gang operating in the city. Media never picked up on these crimes either. The gang contributed heavily to the over 1,000 unsolved rape cases in the District of Columbia at the time. It was likely that they withheld the information out of fear that the gang would be changing their M.O., swap out to a different vehicle, etc. After all, a green Chevy Vega was their trademark. If the media announced that, the gang would only become harder to catch. You would have thought that they would have been smarter, I mean, seriously, they were operating in the same neighborhoods as the Freeway Phantom at the same time. While they were not in the press, everyone was talking about the Phantom and looking for suspicious activity. They were driving around in plain sight, abducting women off the street. It was either stupid or brazen on their parts. I'm going to side with stupid in terms of their thinking. You know that the police are on the lookout for men picking up women in these neighborhoods. So why not just stop doing that? Well, on February 11th, 1973, just 77 days after the murder of T.R.A. and Bryant, the police pulled over a suspicious emerald green Vega. The driver, John Nathaniel Davis, was questioned by the police when his friend walked over and joined in the conversation, trying to help out his partner. That man was Morris Warren. 
The police checked his identification and found it to be false. But even better, the two stories didn't match up. You would have thought Warren would have just kept on walking. It wasn't the brightest move on his part. We're not talking about Mensa Society members here. These are streetwise gang rapists, and both men had criminal histories already with the authorities. In other words, they have been caught before. They're not really smart criminals. Those are the ones that get away. Like the Phantom. Smart or damned lucky, John Davis was taken to the 5th District Police substation and Morris Warren was allowed to leave, but his freedom would be short-lived. Rape victims were brought in and they identified Davis as one of their attackers, and the investigators began to draw a net around the people that surrounded John Davis. To me, it's amazing that they weren't caught any sooner. But again, D.C. was a city struggling with Watergate, the Vietnam War protests, and other challenges. It is amazing because you would think that a Green Vega was not exactly a common car. I think of some of this is because they were rapes, and in the 1970s, these weren't given as high a priority as they are today. They were important crimes, and there was a sex squad that operated for such crimes in the Washington MPD. But the same investigators had to work abortion cases at the time, since those were considered illegal murders. It's always a matter of dollars and resources. Rapes were vicious assaults, but they didn't garner the attention that you might expect. Little did the authorities realize in arresting John Davis, the ringleader of the Green Vega gang rapes, that this would enter a whole new phase of the Freeway Phantom investigation. One that would change the nature of the investigation and the focus for years to come. next episode of Tandem Out, we explore the depths and depravity of the Green Vega gang and their connection to the Freeway Phantom crimes. Tantamount is based on the book by the same name written by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. It is available from Wild Blue Press on Amazon.com. You can go to the author's blog at blainepardo.wordpress.com for additional information on these episodes. The Freeway Phantom is an unsolved case. All suspects named in this podcast are presumed innocent until proven guilty. If you have information that could help authorities, please call the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department at 202-727-9099 or via email at unsolved.murder at dc.gov. Tantamount is written and produced by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. Our music was written and performed by Ed Miller. Production assistance provided by Cindy Pardo.